Marlo Thomas, and I'm an actress and an author, and I work for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Here I was, this little pipsqueak, being compared to somebody who was a major star. And so I said to my father, maybe I should change my name, just so that I won't have to be living up to what you, who and what you are. And he said to me, I raised you to be a thoroughbred. And thoroughbreds run their own races. They just wear their blinders and they run. And that's what you have to do. You don't look at me or any of the other horses. You just run your own race. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Marlo Thomas is an actress and activist who remains a lifelong advocate for women, children, and human rights. She talks about her passion for giving back and why she feels the most successful when helping others. So, Marlo, you said your mom gave you and your siblings her whole life and that you could have done it on half. What do you mean by that? Well, she gave up a singing career. She had her own radio show called uh, Rosemary, the Sweet Singer of Sweet Songs. And then she married my dad and, uh, and followed him on his career. They left Detroit. He went to Chicago and then Los Angeles. And she gave up her singing career. And I think she always kind of regretted that. Even though she was a great mom and a great wife, we really could have done it on half. She didn't have to give up everything. And I think that that's the beauty of what the women's movement has done for younger girls and women today. They don't see themselves as having to give up half their lives. Do you feel like the women's movement is as far along as you thought it would be by this time? Or do you think? Well, you know, I, I love what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said. Somebody asked her when she'd be happy, how many women on the court would make her happy. And she said nine. Because all these years there have been nine men, so why shouldn't there be nine women? And I think, you know, it isn't really until everything is equal for men and women uh, the same that we can say, okay, we, we're far along enough. You know, we're, no, we're not far along enough. I mean, women are stuck in middle management. There aren't enough women uh, running Fortune 500s. I mean, what is it, 12? You know, there aren't. Uh, it's been great this year that more and more women are uh, in the House of Representatives, but still we don't carry the, that many seats in the Senate. So, you know, it, we really have to either have half or more than half. You said you had the best dad. How did he shape you to become a woman? I think my father let my sister and I know uh, pretty much that we could do anything we wanted to do. Uh, we have a brother, too, and there was never any situation where my brother was able to do or uh, thought to be able to do more than we could. I know there are families in which the there's not a lot of money, so the girls don't go to college, the boys go to college. I, I think in our family, everybody was expected to go to college and to finish college. Everybody was expected to get a job and do something with their lives purposeful. Um, and that that's a great um, that's, that's a great way to be launched as a younger person, to know that, the, that much is expected of you and that you should be contributing to the society. You had thought about changing your name as people compared you to your dad when you were younger. How did you cope with those comparisons? Well, you know, it was, I just adored my father and my family. I mean, we're a really very close family. So I was quite stunned when I first went out as an actress and reviewers or interviewers would refer to me as Danny Thomas's daughter, and they would say things like, will she be as big as her dad? Will she be as funny and all that? Will she be as famous? And it scared me because here I was, this little pipsqueak, being compared to somebody who was a major star. 
And so I said to my father, maybe I should change my name just so that I won't have to be living up to what you, who and what you are. And he said to me, I raised you to be a thoroughbred. And thoroughbreds run their own races. They just wear their blinders and they run. And that's what you have to do. You don't look at me or any of the other horses. You just run your own race. And it's just the greatest advice I've ever had in my life. In fact, I based a whole book on it called The Right Words at the Right Time, where I asked 100 people that I admired, you know, were there any words ever in your life that somebody said to you that just really snapped you into reality of what you should do with your life or, or helped you at a crossroads? And that was very important. Those were my right words at the right time. So I didn't change my name, and, and I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad that I stayed connected to my family. When you were in your 20s, you said you felt like a freak because you were different from other women your age. How so? Well, everybody, when I was graduating from college, uh, I went to USC in Los Angeles. And in my senior year, everybody was getting married. I was a bridesmaid 17 times. And you know, I had all those aqua dresses and salmon-colored awful dresses and matching shoes. And I was kind of flabbergasted that people were getting married right and left, and I had no desire to get married. There was so much I wanted to do. I wanted to travel. I wanted to be an actress. I, there was so much I wanted to do that I just thought, well, marriage really isn't for me. But I did think that I was different from a lot of other girls. It wasn't until then I met people like Gloria Steinem and all kinds of other wonderful women who, and writers and actors who also were thinking, no, no, marriage isn't for me, either not yet or never. I thought it would never be for me. Uh, but, you know, I was, uh, I, my father was one of nine Lebanese boys. And, uh, you know, they're really rough on women. You know, I can say that. They're, they're, they, they expect the women to take a back seat. My grandmother had 10 babies, nine boys and a girl. And she really was like everything. She was the cook and the nanny and the housekeeper and the, and the washer and the ironer. And, and I thought, whoa, that's really a lot. So I kind of thought, you know what, I'm probably going to be a woman who just has a career and, and has a business. But then I went on a talk show and met Phil Donahue and changed my mind about the whole thing. You were determined to portray an independent woman on TV. How come? Because I was one. And I wanted to um, portray somebody like me. I had been sent a lot of scripts. I did a television pilot called Two's Company, and it didn't sell. But the network uh, executives and Clairol executives thought that I could be a television star. So they uh, sent me a lot of scripts. And I said to them, in all these scripts, the girl is the wife of somebody, she's the daughter of somebody, she's the secretary of somebody. Have you ever thought of doing a show where the girl is the somebody? And they said, well, like what? I said, well, like a girl like me. I went, I went to USC. I graduated as an English teacher. I don't really want to get married. I want to be an actress. I want to move to the big city, and which I did. I moved from L.A. to New York to study acting. I said, well, not a show like that. And they said, well, would anybody watch a show like that? I said, oh, yes. And I gave them the book of Feminine Mystique. And they had the guts to put it on, and it was a hit the first night. Because even though they thought that a girl like that was an unusual sort of revolutionary figure, the truth was that she was a fait accompli. Every home in America had a that girl in it. And that's why that girl became such a success. 
You said no one is going to rescue women. What do you mean by that? I don't think anybody's going to rescue anybody, uh, a male or female. I think you have to be your own resource and say, okay, this is what I need in life. This is what I want in life. And then you have to go find a way to make that happen. But I think too many girls, uh, me included, are raised on books where show that show you that the prince will come and rescue you and make you have you live uh, happily ever after. And that's why I did Free to Be You and Me. I created new stories for children, boys and girls, where nobody gets rescued, where everybody takes care of themselves. They love each other. They have friends. They, but, but every story does not have the happy ending where the princess runs off with the prince. That's a myth, and it's a bad myth because it makes you feel, makes little girls feel that they don't have to be their own resource, that somebody's going to come and save them. That's a very bad, helpless place to be. You said you'd tell your younger self not to worry so much. What do you mean? You know, worrying, my dad used to say, worry never builds a bridge. Uh, It doesn't build a bridge. The only thing that worrying does is drag you down. So I think uh, rather than worrying, I probably meant by that, which is, you know, just get up and do it. Worrying doesn't get you anywhere. You talked about being a perfectionist when you were younger. How did you move past that? Well, I think, you know, I want things to be right. I want to do them well. Whatever I do, I want it to be done well and completely. And I sort of gravitate toward other people who are that way, you know, whether it's an assistant or a producer or a person that works at St. Jude. I want to be around people who want to do it well. And I think that for me, that's the joy of life, is being with people who all want to really do something well. That's what is exciting about working in a play on Broadway. You all have the same goal. You want to make it really good, you know? Television series, the same way. You want to do it well. You, It's exciting to gather a group of people and say, let's get this done. Uh, that's exciting to me. And so I'm sure that's what I meant by that. You spoke about your husband before. How do two successful and famous people stay married? Well, I think the basis for any marriage is love, love and admiration and trust. I think we have those things. And also, I think that uh, we define certain words the same, like we, we both agree on what's good and what's acceptable. I think if you're married to somebody and you don't agree on what's fair and what's acceptable or unacceptable, you're probably in trouble. But we can say to each other, this is fair or this is not fair. And so I think we define words the same, and we, we love each other, and we like to be with each other, and it's fun. You wrote a book about women who have reinvented themselves. Uh-huh. What's your advice for women who want to reinvent themselves? Well, I think just, just not to be afraid. You know, you only live once. This is it. So uh, I think, was it Cher or somebody said, this is not a dress rehearsal. This is it. it that That's it. I mean, so the idea that that book was called It Ain't Over, Let's Over, which I stole from... Uh, Yogi Berra, uh, it, it's true. It's It ain't over till it's over. So whether you're 50 or 60 or 80 or however old you are, uh, you can start again. You know, a lot of people, and I had written that book really for women, but men or women, you get to a place where you think, oh, you know, I've lost my job or my spouse has left me or my spouse has died or my children have grown and I'm left alone. Whatever it is, I've lost my home. There's so many things that can befall us, you know, that are that can set us back. And I think the thing to be able to say is, okay, I can start again. 
I can begin a new life. I can find a new job. I can become an intern to learn how to do a new job. You know, that you, or I can go back to school and, and learn a new trade or a new craft. The whole idea is that you can start again rather than get frightened by the fact that you've lost something. So being able to realize that it ain't over till it's over to me is very encouraging for all of us, you know, men and women. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. Would you tell us the story of how St. Jude started? Ooh, that's a long story, but let's see if I can say it in a succinct way. Uh, my dad... Uh, was very poor, very broke. I was about to be born, um, and my mom and I were in the hospital, and my dad needed $50 to get us out of the hospital, and he had $12. So he went to Mass that Sunday, and the sermon was on St. Jude, patron of the hopeless cases. So my father prayed to St. Jude and said, who's more hopeless than I am? I've got a, a baby and a wife, and I don't have $50 to get them out of the hospital. So he took $10 of his 12 and put them in the collection basket and said to St. Jude, I'm putting $10, I'm putting $7 of my $10 in the basket, and I need 10 times this. And um, that was a Sunday, and Monday, uh, the next day he got a call to be a singing toothbrush on a radio show for $75. And that was his sign, and then he he prayed that someday he would build a shrine to St. Jude. Uh, he wasn't sure what he was going to do with it, but he knew he wanted to be something about people that were hopeless. And so he, he built St. Jude Children's Research Hospital for the most helpless of all, children with hopeless diseases. What have you learned about philanthropy over the years? I think the biggest thing I've learned is that there's no donation that's too small. You know, people come up to me and say, well, all I've got is a dollar or all I have is $10, what, what difference will that make? It makes all the difference. You know, my dad used to say, I'd rather a million people give me $1 than one, one man or woman give me a million dollars, because that means more people are engaged. And, and being engaged is like a, a big wave, you know? If I get you engaged and then you get your friend engaged and the people listening to us get other people engaged, that's, that's more meaningful in the end to the culture, to society. So I think that that's a very important thing to know about philanthropy is that not, no contribution is too small or no deed you do is too small. Otherwise, you opt out of thinking, well, I don't have enough. I don't have enough money to help. And then so then you're not a part of the wave of giving. So that, I think, is probably the biggest thing I've learned about philanthropy. What do you think motivates people to give? I think people want to do something good. You know, we just don't know how. You know, you if you ask anybody, they will tell you, I'd like to do something good. I'd like to give something for other people, but we don't know how. 
And one of the things I like about being the outreach director for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, I can help show people how they can do something for the good. I mean, St. Jude isn't the only place you can do good. I just hope it's one of the places that you do good. But I think people want to. They just don't know how. You're part of a team that I heard raises over $700 million a year for the hospital. Is that right? uh-huh. How do you cope with such an overwhelming number? I mean, that's a huge number. Well, we don't have a choice. You know, children come to St. Jude and we nobody pays. No parent has to pay at St. Jude. That was my father's promise. Because my father grew up in a very poor neighborhood. He never went to a doctor. His mom had 10 babies with no doctor. And so he really wanted to build a place where every child would get the same first-class care so that way nobody gets a bill. And so that's our demand and our command. We must raise this money. It costs $2.6 million a day at St. Jude for all the research and the treatment and the children, for their travel, for their food, for their housing, and all, no, longer, no matter how long it takes to make a child well. So it's very important to us that we just do it. And so we do it. What do you say to people who say St. Jude spends too much on marketing and fundraising? We don't, not at all. We don't spend too much on marketing or fundraising. Actually, 85 cents of every dollar goes directly to the hospital. So I think we have one of the lowest averages of any hospital or any charity. What impact do you think the new tax law is having on charitable giving? I think uh, we don't know, and for St. Jude, uh, it's so far it hasn't affected us, but we're not quite sure, and we won't really know until after this holiday season what this new tax law is going to have done to charitable giving. But at St. Jude, we have an army of donors uh, that have been with us since 1962 when the hospital was opened. So the tax laws, I don't think, are really going to affect us, but uh, we'll have to see what happens after this uh, holiday season. You meet a lot of sick kids, and St. Jude helps many of them, but not every child makes it. So I'm wondering, how do you cope with the loss that you see? Well, what I've learned a lot about that is from the parents of the children who don't make it. They become our strongest fundraisers because they know that everything was done to keep their child alive. And that child is a chain, a link in the chain of the research that will go forward and save the next child and the next child and the next child. You know, when a child comes to St. Jude, they've got their best possible chance of survival. Many of the children who come to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital have been referred by doctors in hospitals in New York or Boston or Los Angeles or Seattle because most hospitals are working on what they know. And since St. Jude is a research center, we're working on what nobody knows. We're, we're doing research right this moment that will be going to the bedside tomorrow or next week. So every child has a, a doctor and a scientist on their case. So every child has the best possible chance of survival. So there are so many parents have told me who've lost children that we know that it wasn't because of us. We didn't, it wasn't because we didn't have enough money. Our child got the same best first-class care, and the, and the research just hadn't caught up with that particular case. What's the best personal finance advice you ever received? To tip well. I think the most important thing is to show people gratitude. My father used to always tell us that. 
be sure to show people who serve you in a restaurant or in a cab or wherever, tip them well and let them know when they do a good job that they've done well because everybody needs a thank you and needs to be uh, shown uh, gratitude for their job. What type of investor are you? Uh, I'm probably a very conservative investor. I, my husband and I discuss it, and we have, have a business manager. Uh, but we're, we're, we're very careful conservative investors. What motivates you to keep working despite all your success? I love to work. I can't imagine not working. And when people say, will you ever retire? I remember what Bob Hope said when he was like 98. He said, retire to what? You know, what, what would you do? I absolutely love my work as an actor. And I love my work uh, for St. Jude. It's very life-giving. And when I'm working for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, I'm seeing children come there with death sentences. And then six, seven, eight months later, they're alive and well and going to school. And I know that I've been a part of that. And my work in the theater or on television or wherever, people are laughing and having a good time. I'm helping to bring joy to people. I mean, why would I want to stop doing that? What else would you like to achieve? What else would I like to achieve? I think I'd just like to be better at everything I do. You know, I mean, I'd like to be a better actor. I'd like to be a better wife. I'd like to be a, a better fundraiser. And I'd like to just and, and be able to relax more and enjoy uh, what I have and, and what I do. So, Marlo, can you tell me how, what's one step people could take to help St. Jude given the holiday season? Well, you know, we have our Thanks and Giving campaign going on right now which is very, very exciting, and it's everywhere. I mean, you'd really, you'd, you, you would have to be in a cave not to notice it. Our thanks and giving commercials are on television with Jennifer Aniston and Michael Strahan and Sofia Vergara and Louis Fonzi, and um, we're also, we have lots of those commercials. And then we're in the movie theaters uh, with our trailer with those stars. We're on American Airlines and Delta Airlines. We're all over the place. Uh, I'm here today talking with you. And you can go to any of our stores like Best Buy or Williams-Sonoma or Ann Taylor or Domino's Pizza or Kmart, and they're going to ask you to leave a dollar for the children of St. Jude. And a dollar is really important. You know, I mean, it. when we get all those dollars together, uh, we raise about $100 million at this time of year. So that, 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 that one dollar that you leave at Best Buy or Brooks Brothers or wherever, that adds up to about $100 million. So that's very, very important uh, to save children's lives because nobody pays at St. Jude. So we have to get 78% uh, of our money from the public, where the average for-profit hospital only has to get 8% of their money from the public. So we're very, very dependent on public funding. So this, that's really the lifeblood of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. So when you go shopping and you're having a wonderful time and thinking about all the goodies you're buying for your family and friends, think about the kids who don't get to go home for Christmas. You know, they're at St. Jude with their parents, and what they're really hoping for is a cure, and you're helping to pay for that cure. How do you relax now? Uh, well, I work out. I love to work out. I love to run in the park, and I love to bicycle. And I love to play charades with my friends. Um, and I love—I just love to laugh. I like to go to comedy shows. Uh, I saw a show just a couple weeks ago on Lenny Bruce. I, I like to, uh, laughter is a very big part of my life because my father was a comedian. And laughter is a very big part of what we do at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. We do a lot of things to give the children entertainment and have a good time. And a lot of people don't see that laughter is such an important part of how we need to live.
and 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 music. Have a lot of music in your life. Uh, very good for the brain. Very good for the central nervous system. Music, laughter. Yes, those are important to me. Time now for your secrets. I'm Marlo Thomas, and my money secret is to tip people well, to show gratitude for the people who serve you, because that's the way of saying thank you, and it's also a way of noticing. Noticing is one of the biggest tips I have for living well in our culture, and one of the ways of noticing is to also tip people well. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. John Wardock is the executive producer of WSJ Podcasts. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women.